you give your attention now to the reading of God's holy and inspired and an errant word from Revelation chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for Revelation chapter 20. I pray that you would help us. Father, that by your spirit, you would open our eyes Give us understanding, teach us, train us, correct us, rebuke us, make us more like Jesus. Do with us what you promised to do, to work in us so that we might be more like him. Father, would you help me? Your servant, protect me from error. Give me strength. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable unto you, O God. You are my rock and my redeemer. You, you alone, are our only hope in life and in death. We give you thanks and we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Though I was out of town all week, I was doing really well.
preparing for this week's sermon. When I would get a few moments here or there, breaks in the conference, I'd run up to my hotel room and I would work. I was doing well, I thought. And then I came across a quote by Charles Spurgeon in a message that he preached from this very passage. And this is what he said. I think some ministers would do far more for the profit of God's people if they would preach more about the first advent of Jesus and less about the second. Did you catch that? I think some ministers would do far more for the profit of God's people if they would talk more about Jesus' birth than his second coming. I've always admired Spurgeon's snarkiness, and that won't surprise most of you, but this one really hit home. I sat back in my very uncomfortable desk chair, and I looked at the books and the papers that were strewn across this desk-like table I had made for myself, and I began to worry. For 19 chapters of the book of Revelation, I've I've sought to do due diligence to study and then come to you and preach clearly yet authoritatively each and every passage. I've been very purposeful to avoid the many trivial and controversial debates that surround the interpretation and application of this book. And instead, my desire has been to point you to Jesus, to point you to his kingship over everything And to point you to the hope that each and every one of us from John's time until Jesus does come back, to point you to the hope that you can have in the certain victory of Jesus when he does come again. But this week, this week, we've come to a passage that makes some of the best scholars, and I'm not one of those, But it makes some of the best scholars not only miss the forest for the trees, but sometimes I think they even miss the tree. I mean, this morning, we've come to the passage, right? We've come to the passage. What has been called the interpretive key to the whole book of Revelation. The one passage that causes Christians of all kinds to get out those name tags, grab a Sharpie, right? And write the name of their tribe and then wear that badge with pride and splendor and sometimes humility. I mean, this morning, we come to the millennium, not the falcon, but we come to the thousand years. The one topic that, given how much it's discussed, and blessed are you amongst people if you've never heard someone talk about this before, you would think it would appear a thousand times in the Bible, right? No. It appears only here. I mean, it's mentioned six times, and you know, that's one of our Bible study keys, is if something's mentioned over and over again, it's important. It's important, but it's only mentioned in this passage. Well, since it's talked about so much, because I believe it's key to understanding the whole book, I'm going to spend some time up front. And our first point, I'm going to address some common views about the millennium. And here's my hope, though. My hope is that all of us are going to leave here this morning 
not wishing that I had actually preached more about Jesus' first coming, but rather, I really think we can have our hearts prepared to celebrate that first coming. That as we look forward to December, when we celebrate his birth, we're going to be able to celebrate it even more. And here's why. Because I think that if we wrap our minds as best we can by the Spirit's help around this, we're going to better understand the beauty and the glory and the depth of Christ's kingdom that came, that came to earth at Bethlehem. The kingdom that the author of Hebrews describes as the kingdom that cannot, it will not be shaken. That's the kingdom we celebrate. So let's start this morning. Point one, makes sense. I'm going to call it the crux. Not crutch, the crux. C-R-U-X. That means the most important part of the whole. The most important part of the whole passage. And so this is the first, and you'll be happy. It's only two points again this morning. The crux. The crux of the passage I've already given away. It's without a doubt 1,000 years. It's 1,000 years. The millennium. It's mentioned six times. I said you can look for yourself, and it's helpful because you see it in verse 2. See it? You see it in verse 3. Verse 4. Verse 5. Verse 6. Verse 7. You didn't have to jump around much, did you? It's right there, right before your eyes. So here's the question. What's the thousand years? What's the millennium? Well, according to pre-millennialism, pre-millennialism, the second coming of Jesus happens prior to or before, hence pre, this millennium. Jesus comes, the second coming is prior to this millennium. And you can't just always have one. You have to break that one into two, right? So there's two types of premillennialists. There's more, but I'll cover the two major ones. Historic premillennialists assert that resurrected Christians will enjoy a thousand years of earthly bliss after Jesus returns. Okay? A thousand years, a literal thousand years. Dispensational premillennialists, on the other hand, insist that the thousand years will commence after a secret rapture of Christians and a seven-year tribulation where some Jews and other remaining people convert to Christianity. And then after that tribulation, Jesus, the Messiah, is going to return and he's going to physically reign upon the throne of David in Jerusalem in a restored Jewish state here on earth. That's historic and dispensational premillennialism. Sounds like a lot of books you've read, right? Or movies you've seen. But in both pre-millennial views, the final consummation of all things, that is the very, very, very last day when the new heavens and new earth are ushered in, happens at the end of a literal thousand years. That's premillennialism. Some of you are like, I'm done. 
There's only two more views. Let me put them out there for you. It's important. According to post-millennialism, the second coming of Jesus happens after the millennium. Here, the thousand years, which we've seen here six times, is mostly considered to be symbolic. You're not surprised by that. Symbolic for a long amount of time. This thousand years happens toward the end of the gospel age or the church age when Satan is finally bound and almost the whole world is Christianized as the church finally conquers all the other religions on the earth. Okay, so the thousand years symbolic for a long amount of time happens toward the end of the gospel age. And it's where the church triumphs and literally takes over all the philosophies of the world. And most people are Christians. That is post-millennialism. Notice I'm not telling you who holds to these different views yet. I'll tell you mine at the end. We tend to want to identify with camps based on who's in that camp, right? just want you to listen. If you don't already know this, it's important. So the third and final view that I'm going to talk about is ah millennialism. So pre-millennialism, post-millennialism, ah millennialism. According to ah millennialists, the second coming of Jesus, right? His second coming also happens after the millennium, like post-millennialists, right? It happens after. But in contrast to the post-millennialists, ah millennialists, this is hard to say, Amillennialists see the thousand years itself, not as a time at the end, but rather a symbolic description of the entire period of time between the ascension of Jesus to heaven and his future second return to earth. Did I get that? So it still happens after the millennium, but the millennium is a long period of time that covers all of the church age. Now, This is one of my pet peeves. This view is not named well. I mean, its name literally means no millennium. But it doesn't deny a millennium, does it? It just says that the millennium is the present age that we live in. And so this is kind of fun. Many have suggested that it be renamed. One I hear often from scholars is nunk millennialism. I'm like, really? Why make it harder? Nunk means now. Latin. Um, it hasn't caught on. <laughs> I've, I've actually tried. Uh, it hasn't caught on. Okay, so those are the three. Those are the three main views of the millennium held by Christians today. Pre, post, and ah, millennialism. So for the record, I'm going to go ahead and put my card on the table. Most of you have probably guessed, if not already talked to me about it, but here we go. I am a nunk millennialist. Almost sounds like I said monk, right? I'm an ah Millennialists. I hold to the amillennial view of the millennium, but let me say this. I want to say this. I want to say it clear. I do not believe that it is worth creating deep rifts in the church over this issue. Some of you might even be surprised to hear that there are pastors in our own denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America, that hold to all three views, sort of. There's historic Premillennialists, there's postmillennialists, and there's amillennialists. You won't find 
that I'm aware of, now you won't find many dispensational premillennialists, but you will find historic premillennialists. And you know what? We all have different views, and as far as I know, we're still friends. We still get along okay. I hope. But personally, I hold to the amillennial position. I'm not willing to die for it. I'm not, because there's still just such a mystery here. I do hold to it. That's the badge I wear. Uh, Hopefully I wear it with some humility. Authoritatively, but with humility. And I hope that as we move into our second point this morning, it's going to become clear why I hold to that view. Even if you hold to one of the other views strongly, awesome. Just, Just listen. Let's think about this together. So we're going to move from the crux of the passage to its interpretation. To its interpretation. That's the second point this morning, the interpretation. I did not get creative with points this week. Okay. Revelation 20. Now, this might be new to some who might be visiting with us. I encourage you to go back either to when we preached at the very beginning or go back to our first sermon in this series, King of Glory, in Revelation chapter 17. I went over some of the things I'm going to mention now in passing. So that's just like five weeks ago. Go to our website, uh, go to YouTube, find that and listen because I explain a little bit more what I'm about to say. Revelation 20 begins the seventh and final parallel cycle of the history between Jesus' ascension into heaven and his second coming on the last day. Okay? Revelation is not chronological from beginning to end. Instead, it provides us seven pictures of these cycles of the church age. And this begins the seventh. <laughs> how can we be sure? How do you know, Pastor Dan? Well, how did 19, chapter 19 end? How did it end? We just covered it last week. Jesus returns, and it's the final battle. It's the final battle. It's the last battle. This is like the third last battle we've had. How many last battles can we have? It's the final battle. And and how did it end? All the inhabitants of the earth, it says. All those who were not in Christ but worshiped the beast, what happened to them? Look at verse 21 of chapter 19. They were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. All of God's enemies are dead. All of God's enemies are dead. This means that chapter 20 cannot come chronologically after chapter 19. There would be no one left to reign over in an earthly kingdom. There'd be no Jews to be converted, as premillennialists argue. Nor would there be any more religions to be conquered, as postmillennialists argue. You see, chapter 20 must begin a new cycle. And how has every other cycle began before this one? It's began by giving us a picture of the time that starts after Jesus ascends into heaven. And so, with my interpretive approach, I see this as beginning right at the beginning of the church age. And you're like, whoa. Wait a minute, Pastor Dan, we've tracked with you for two years and 19 chapters, but you went too far. Pastor Dan, did you read verses one through three? I mean, come on, man. Did you read that? 
I just read that an angel comes down from heaven, seizes Satan, binds him in chains, throws him into the bottomless pit, shuts it and seals it for a thousand years. So Pastor Dan, in your view, what you're teaching us, are you saying that Satan is bound right now? Are you saying that Satan has been bound and thrown into a bottomless pit and since Jesus ascended into heaven? Yes. Yes, I am. I am saying that. Because I want you to see what the text does not say. Always pay attention to what the text does not say. It does not say that Satan is not active. It does not say that he doesn't tempt or that he doesn't seek to thwart. It doesn't say that he doesn't seek to do that through his beasts or his great prostitute, Babylon. It doesn't say they're not active. It doesn't say any of that. What does it say? What does the text say? Look at verse 3. Why is he bound? What's the conditional clause here? So that he might not deceive the nations any longer. So that he might not deceive the nations any longer. And all of a sudden, like all my wires in my brain were starting to short circuit, right? Because as we're going to see in a minute, he gets released. He does deceive the nations and then this battle happens again. So what's going on? Well, bear with me. We're going to take a little walk through three passages, okay? Small passages, brief passages that all shed light on this. First, turn to Matthew 12. We're going to see that some of the words are the same and even some of the ideas are the same. And we're just going to go straight to the words of Jesus. As we already saying, Jesus is the whole story, right? It all points to him. But here we hear from him. Matthew 12, 28 and 29. Jesus is accused of blasphemy by the Pharisees. He's actually told that he's a demon. Um, Verse 28. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first, here's the same word, binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. You're going to steal and take away from the strong man. You bind them and then you rob them. And then you take him away. Jesus is relating that to casting out demons and, of course, saving people. And he's making, how could I do that? If I was a demon or if I was Satan, how can Satan bind out Satan? But no, I've, I bind him and cast them out. That's one. Let's turn over to Luke 10. Here the d- disciples have been sent out to preach and to cast out demons and heal, and they return. I just love the exuberance that they return with here in Luke chapter 10, verse 17. 
The 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And Jesus said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. You see, Jesus says that you know, Satan is cast down. We talked about that was at the cross. Remember the access that Satan had even to the courts of God. We see that in the book of Job, right? There he was. Now he's cast down, this idea that he's cast away. Even as we see in our passage in Revelation 20, he's cast into the pit, the bottomless pit. And let's turn over to John 12, last one. Many more we could look at, but I just wanted to point to these in hopes that they were helpful for your growth. Encourage you to go back and read them in context later. Be a Berean. Study the scriptures. Listen to the language that Jesus uses here. 12, 31, and 32. Now, not later, now is the judgment of this world Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people, all kinds of people, right? I will draw all kinds of people to myself. See the juxtaposition? Satan is cast down. He's cast out. Jesus is ascended. He's lifted up, not only on the cross, but he's lifted up, he's ascended into heaven where he sits as king and he rules and reigns. Satan is cast down, Jesus ascends, and what happens? People. We know it's not every single person who's ever lived because then everybody would be saved, right? We know that his use of all here is all types of people, including who? The Gentiles, the nations, the ethne, right? The nations. You see, Jesus came and he ushered in the kingdom of God. Jesus came and he brought with him the kingdom of God. And with his death and his resurrection and his ascension, Satan is defeated and he's cast out. He's still active. We would be foolish to say he's not active. But he cannot and he will not prevent the spread of the gospel to the nations. No longer will he deceive the nations. Do you believe this? I mean, maybe this is surprising to you, but the center of Christianity is not in the West anymore. Do you know where the center of Christianity is? It's in the global South. That's where the Holy Spirit is blowing his breath. And that is where people are being saved by the multitudes. It's in the global South. In fact, they're saying within the next 30 years, 20% of the world's Christians will be in West Africa. The nations will no longer be deceived. So how do we grasp this? How do we deal with this? How can Satan be bound, yet active? I've seen some of your yards. They're beautiful. I don't know how God has allowed me to keep children alive for 12 years. And I, 
I see the plants and the beautiful things in your yard. Now, let's say I had a big, mean, nasty dog. And I was going to put him in your yard for a while. Would you let that dog just run around and do what he wants all over your beautiful gardens and flowers? No. What would you do? You'd put him on a leash, right? You'd put him on a chain. You might even rope off areas or fence off areas, right? But what are you going to do? You're going to look at that dog and you're going to say, this is where you can be, but there you cannot touch. There you cannot go. You're chained. You're bound. You're confined to this area, but you can't touch my beautiful roses. That might be the only flower I know its name right now. Okay, you can't touch those things. Does that make sense? Do you get the illustration? Satan is bound. He has his area to roam. He has what he does. But he's shut out from his access to heaven where he once was. And he's shut out from stopping the spread of the gospel, from deceiving the nations as he did before. History has shown clearly, as I've just pointed out, that Satan has not been able to prevent the spread of the gospel. It's went forth in power. He can no longer deceive the nations, but I've already said this, but look again at verse 3 and then verse 7. He's going to be released. He's going to be released from his chains at the end of days, at the end of this symbolic thousand years, and then he will. Look at verse 7. He's going to deceive the nations. He's going to go back out and do it, and what's he going to do? He's going to gather them for battle. And it's not going to be just a few. What it says, their number is like the sand of the sea. He's going to deceive the nations. He's going to call them all together. This cannot be chronological with chapter 19. There, all of Christ's enemies are dead. Here, they gather gather for battle again. Some find then that Satan is bound in the church age. He's bound during this thousand years. He cannot, he will not prevent the spread of the gospel. He will not prevent the advance of Christ's kingdom, the church here on earth. He's going to oppose it. Oh yeah, he's going to oppose it. His strongholds will stand against it. But he cannot and he will not stop it. God's purposes will go forth. I believe this is clearly pictured for us in verses 4 through 6. I think there we have, it's tough, it's hard to understand, but it's a wonderful picture of what happens during this time frame. I mean, right now, at this very moment, we can agree here that Jesus is reigning. If we take this interpretation, Jesus is reigning, and he's reigning with his saints in heaven. It even tells us who these saints are. They're they're both those who have been put to death. The martyrs, right? Those who have been put to death for their faith. It's not just them. It's also, look, those who refuse to worship the beast and its image. Those who refuse to bow down to the worldly systems of unjust governments and all of that. And those who refuse to bow the knee to false religions. Okay. What in the world is all this talk about a first resurrection and a second death? 
That's kind of confusing, isn't it? I mean, if there's a first resurrection and a second death, then does that mean that there's a second resurrection and a first death? Is that what that means? Well, what does it mean? Well, first, I just want to point out that this word first, right, can refer to a temporary or a transient stage, right? It doesn't just have to be first in number, but it it can also refer to a temporary stage, just as it does over in Revelation 21, 1 and 4. There, if you want to look, you see the new heaven and new earth are seen as coming in place of the first heaven and the first earth that have passed away. So yes, it is the second one, but we see that there was a time that this first heaven and earth uh, were there, right? That's what we live in. <laughs> we live in that first heaven and first earth, right? Uh, but it's temporary. What we live in is temporary. It's transient. It's going to pass away. So in like manner, the first resurrection doesn't have to, as some insist, necessarily refer to a physical resurrection. The saints who are in heaven during the millennial reign of Jesus, the saints who are in heaven right now, do they have their physical bodies? Some of you are like, I don't know. No, they don't. They don't. They're there Their souls are there. They don't have their glorified physical bodies. And, you know, we don't have time, but go read 1 Corinthians 15. Paul in his teaching makes it very clear, right? That on the last day when Jesus does return, what's going to happen, right? The trumpet's going to sound, right? We've seen the trumpet already in Revelation. And our physical bodies are going to rise. They're going to be put back together, right? They're going to be glorified and we're going to be united, physical body, glorified physical body with our spirit or souls. And there we will live in our glorified state forever. So the first resurrection is a reference to those who are reigning with Jesus in heaven. It's a soul without a body, but it's only temporary. It's only temporary until Jesus returns at the end of the symbolic thousand years. I think this is a comforting thing. Let me stop for a moment. Not enough application, right? Lots of information. There are some who teach that, well, when you die, you just wait. When you die, you're just kind of in limbo. It's not true. If you're here this morning and you're in Christ, the same thing that Jesus said to the thief on the cross, he'll say to you, Today you will be with me in paradise, okay? If you were to die today, if you are in Christ, your soul will be with him. You'll be reigning with him in heaven where he is, okay? And you'll long await that day when you return. You return with him. Be part of the train of his robe. First Thessalonians, what we saw last week. And then all that other stuff will happen, right? When we preach through First Corinthians, we'll cover that, okay? But all that other stuff's gonna happen. But I want you to be comforted in that there. There's not a limbo. If you're not in Christ, you won't be with him. You'll be separated from him. Okay, but keep that in mind. Be encouraged by that. And I want you to notice in verse five that those who are not in Jesus, as we just said, do not experience this first resurrection where they rise to heaven and reign with him. No, they actually experience a descension. They, they suffer until the end of the thousand years when they will experience this makes sense of Verse 6, the second death. Look over in 21, 5 through 8. It is described for us. We actually get the definition. What is the second death? 
21, let's just read verse 8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, all those apart from Jesus, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. That's where the beasts and Babylon and where Satan himself goes. They go there. Christians have no fear of the second death. We have no fear of that. We have no fear. We're secure in Christ, full of hope in the first and second resurrection. That's our hope. That's why it says in verse 6, what does it say? Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. (laughs) You're blessed. You're blessed. You're safe. You're secure. Nothing can separate you from the love of Jesus and you're all looking at your watches going, Pastor Ian, you got verses 7 through 10 left. Well, yeah, I was away for a week. And so I said, well, we'll just lightly cover it and then move it into next week's sermon. That's why there's two points this morning. But I do want to point out something important real quick. What we have in 7 through 10 is the details of that battle, that final battle again. This should all sound familiar if you've been reading the book of Revelation, because we've seen this battle before. But here, remember, as we go through these cycles, it intensifies. We get a different picture each time. And as we get closer to the end, now we're seeing, wow, this is what really happens at the end. And now we see what we expect to see. Actually, at the end, that greatest enemy dies as well. He's once and for all finally and fully destroyed And that happens at the end of the millennium when the gospel has spread to all the ends of the earth and the full number of God's elect have been gathered into the kingdom. And just a reminder, we cannot know the day or the hour. Jesus made that crystal clear. We cannot know the day or the hour when that's actually going to come. But it's coming. It's coming. It will happen. So let's land the plane, so to say. I have a friend. I'm happy to finally be able to quote him today. He likes to say this. He says, post-millennials are optimists. Amillennials are pessimists. And premillennials are just confused. Sorry if you're... But, you know, it's like I often tell Megan, and I've said this before, she's the sunshine to my rain cloud in our marriage. I'm not pessimistic. I'm just realistic. Still not working, is it, honey? But amillennialism, I'm convinced, is realistic. It doesn't hope for some escape from tribulation or earthly kingdom reign over a particular nation state. It doesn't force us to read tea leaves and try to figure out what's happening all the time. Neither does it uh, put its faith in a gospel golden age that sees the church triumphing over the physical realm, even mostly divulging into restructionist and theonomistic thoughts. No, amillennialism, I believe, takes Jesus' words At the beginning of the gospel, according to Mark, chapter 1, verse 15, you can look it up. What does Jesus say? The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's right now. 
Repent and believe in the gospel. Amillennialism takes those words at face value and sees all of history until he returns again as the millennium, as the kingdom, as him actively, as our king reigning over all of that kingdom from heaven and truly believing that even the very gates of hell cannot prevail against it. Hell can put up its strongholds, but the gospel will plow right through if the spirit is moving and leading people to faith. So listen, as confusing as this passage can be, and I understand it is, man, I'll be sad if you leave here this morning and you don't see the hope, the hope that it gives us. It truly reminds us that there's no in-between kingdom. There is no in-between kingdom. Christ Jesus is reigning over his kingdom right now. And we, you and I, can be certain that we reign with him as priests, even here, let alone when we ascend there. 1 Peter 2.9, you're a chosen race right now. You're a royal priesthood right now. You're a holy nation right now. You're a people for his own possession right now. And we're going to despair over all the attacks against us. We're going to cry out against the attacks towards Jesus' kingdom, the church. But we cannot lose sight that our king, the one who rules both the nations and our hearts, even now from heaven, is and will be victorious over every single foe. Do you believe that? Do you know that because he has conquered you have conquered with him. No matter what you face, no matter what you lack, no matter what will or will not happen to you or me, Jesus reigns. He reigns over it all. And he is our one and only hope, whether it's in life or in death. Amen and amen. Would you... Grab your bulletins.